Hey guys, Sklar Brothers here from View from the Cheap Seats podcast. And this week we have one of the best sports writers in the game. And he's got a great podcast as well. Jonah Carey joins us on the podcast. Did you have fun on View from the Cheap Seats, Jonah? I had the most fun and my commute was about 14 steps down to my living room. We did it in your living room. We're in Denver. It's a little road. uh, I'm going to call it a road victory for us all. We all There's no one I want to talk to more than who right now during these baseball playoffs than than Jonah Jonah Carey. Carey. So join us on this episode because we take the deepest dive. Let me just say there is a three a <laughs> Mordecai three, three finger, finger brown reference. There you go. That's and by there. the way, Gar Ryness is not here. I'm kissing him. I'm, I'm giving love. a shout out now. I feel like he always needs to be at least in spirit. When we love talk. to the batting stance yes. guy. Guys, I want to tell you about a great sponsor I have, Bompus. They're premium high performance athletic socks, and they're so comfortable you're never going to want to take them off. And because socks are the number one requested item in homeless shelters, for every pair of socks purchased, Bompus donates one pair of those to those in need. Almost 1 million pairs donated to date. 15% off the first purchase of four or more socks. Plus free shipping. So go to getbompus.com slash feral and buy some comfortable socks. Feral Audio. Conversations with Matt Dwyer. I'm Matt Dwyer. Uh, if you uh, if you like my uh, the theme music there, that is a band called Les Blanks. Please go to lesblanks.com. Check out more of their stuff. If you were a first time listener to this show, thank you for listening. If you're a long time listener, thank you for listening. And for those of you who may not know what it is, it is pretty much I just I I sit down and I talk to uh, very interesting creative people. And uh, sometimes they're writers, sometimes they're artists, sometimes they're activists. It's uh, There's no one thing I do on this show, and I'm proud of that. Uh, today, I talk with a, a fascinating man, Mr. Stash Macek. And uh, did it seem like I rushed his name there? I get nervous saying names. I don't want to, I don't want to, I don't want to mispronounce them and be an asshole. <laughs> like, uh, and I'm neurotic, so I just obsess about it in my brain. Anyway, Stash is a saloon poet, and he's a front man uh, for the Capcom Holdups, which is a really groovy band. And if you go to the mattwire.com, I'm going to have one of their videos up there so you can check it out, get a better concept of what they are and who they are if you don't um, know them already. And uh, if you uh, like people like Stash, you might want to check out some of my other uh, interviews. Uh, I've interviewed a couple Fisher poets. Uh, uh, Dave Densmore and Gino Leach, really interesting goddamn guys. But this is about Stash. This is interesting, uh, the the sort of the history of how this show happened. is. Um, I worked at a coffee shop like 12 years ago in Echo Park in Los Angeles. And uh, one night when I was working, there was a poetry reading. And everybody would get up and just kind of read and blah, blah, blah. And Stash got up and took the room, walked around it, and it was pretty engaging. Uh, and I remembered it. And then years later, he came into a bar when I'm bartending, and I was like, "Hey, man, you're that dude." <laughs> and we talked, and we had some drinks, and fun, you know, we had a lot of in common. He's from Chicago. Then a couple weeks ago, I'm doing uh, the Jail Guitar Doors. There's a, a show they did going backstage, and Stash is back there, and I'm like, "Hey, man!" <laughs> it's like, and I was like, "You got to do my show because he's an engaging and riveting performer." So I'm really glad to have him come on here and talk about the world of uh, saloon poetry, uh, which is uh, I'm I'm not going to tell you about it. Stash is going to tell you about it. It's really uh, it's really interesting. He's an interesting guy, so you're going to have to uh, just going to have to hang in there. I today I'm just I'm fuzzy in the brain, and I'm I don't know what's going on with me. I might, I might have not eaten yet, uh, but then you know the, the 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 holidays are coming up, and that always causes anxiety. That always gets the old uh, <laughs> the old uh, oh boy. Will I have enough money? Uh, but this year, I'm happy. I'm happy, and I actually look forward to the holidays for the first time in years. My house, when I was a kid, holidays meant there's gonna be a brawl. Some fighting's gonna happen. Somebody's gonna drink too much and touch somebody's wife and punch his fly. <laughs> and one year, my it was actually at my uh, niece's uh, wedding reception. Two of my brothers got in a fight over um, 
unions. Boy, does, does that get any more Irish, Catholic, working class and fist fight at a wedding over over unions? Just, uh, yeah, I was real proud. And I tried to get in the middle of it. <laughs> and uh, my brothers are, they're big guys who fight. And I'm a little guy who says things with words to try to defend himself. So you could imagine how me in the middle of the, I was... I was like a little cat toy in between two huge cat paws just getting... It was like comical. It looked like... Uh, it looked bad. But uh, so, yeah, I used to not go home for the holidays ever. Like 17 years I haven't been home for a holiday. Uh, and often I'd spend them alone uh, drinking. Uh, one New Year's, I... And to me, I was just like, no, I'm, I'm fine with this. Uh, 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 you know, this is how I do it. And I would uh, cook myself a nice dinner and I'd make some martinis. And uh, at least one New Year's, I woke up uh, by the, the old Langsine, Langsine, whatever that song's called, woke me up as I just like fell, like woke up with a martini glass in my hand and my bathrobe. And, uh, Seemed okay to me. And then I got a dog to fill that void. I think the dog was just like, once in a while, would be like, hey, man, you can go out. Like, you don't have to hang here for the holidays. I'm a dog. I don't really know what's going on. And I often am alone anyway. <laughs> but now I have a woman in my life. So it feels, uh, it feels, uh, you know, now I look forward to the holidays because I get to go buy presents. And we get a tree, and we do those things that other normal people do who aren't sad, lonely drunks. <laughs> it's nice. It took me 40-something years to find this sort of joy in life. But, hey, I'm here, and that's what's uh, what's exciting. And then with that, though, comes um, a lot of, uh, I, I worry, well, now I feel like I need to take care of myself because... I, I, I want to kind of enjoy happiness because as I say often I have entered the I'm entering the ass cancer stroke heart attack years so I better I better stop eating bacon and uh, drinking so much but it's fun drinking is fun as my grandfather once told me uh, my grandpa Elmer said uh, he, he said to me kid don't do drugs it's filthy stuff drinking is good clean fun and who am I to argue an old German man who would crack every morning, crack a beer into a glass of old style and chug it down? That was breakfast. And uh, I've eaten the raw egg thing. I have not done it with a beer at first thing in the morning. I find it kind of feel like in a weird way I should as an homage to him. And I'm also terrified. <laughs> that just seems like entering a, just a world that maybe I don't want to enter. Anyway... Let's uh, let's get on to the uh, conversation here with uh, Stash Machak. He is an incredible poet and musician, and well, let's get to it. So the thing that interested me is when we for, when we were writing back and forth on the old Facebook that you you called yourself a saloon poet and what what, what would define that? Uh, a saloon poet is a poet who reads poetry aloud or recites poetry aloud or performs poetry in saloons most of the time. <laughs> so it's self-explanatory. It's pretty easy, there, but it's kind of a tradition of of a sort of a. Um, I think it might come from like the beatnik sort of scene in in, in the on the old town in Chicago back in the day, but uh, there's a, a a certain bunch of guys. Most of them are really old by now, but they're but you know sort of. I like to think of them as big-shouldered poets. You know, they were like like guys who looked like they worked on on the, on a dock or drove a truck or whatever, and then they'd come in and they'd be like they'd rip this amazing shit. You know. And there's places to go to see it. It was like uh, uh, Green Mill, uh, where Mark Smith is basically the saloon poet <laughs> in residence. And kind of like one of the guys. He's the guy who actually invented the poetry slam, God bless him. Really? Yeah. But it's morphed into something that it wasn't when it started in Chicago at the Get Me High Lounge, I think. And then they moved it to the Green Mill. But, and that was where the first... Um, 
where they'd have a competition, and it always was picking people from the audience to be the judges, you know, because if you're going to be a saloon poet, <laughs> you know, but this is with the Poetry Slam. It was called Poetry Slam because they were thinking like a slam, Grand Slam, or like a, like a bridge slam, you know. It's like uh, they pick people t from the bar to be, and you, they might not like, you know, the person who gets picked to be a judge might not like poetry, you know, or you, or your fucking shirt, or whatever. <laughs> <you know? laughs> so they, they won't necessarily, you know, um, cut you any slack. And I learned to read in a joint called Weeds on Dayton in Chicago, right by where North and Clybourne are, mm -hmm. uh, by the subway station there, over to one side. And that place was fucking a crucible because if you sucked, even if you were good, they would fucking give you shit. But if you sucked, they would rip you a new fucking asshole. Like they really, I mean, it was like a bar that really cared about the poetry that was happening. And like to the point where like not 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 just the host would fuck with you, if but like the guy behind the bar, you know, you'd be like reading and doing your thing, and the guy behind the bar would be like, oh. "Yeah, why don't you go home and write yourself a fucking poem? How about that?" You know, wow. <laughs> and, I, and like and you you'd be like, you know, people. I saw people just wilt and fall apart, and they'd be like, "Well, thanks for coming up anyway," you know. And, and it was, and they would just, and if they get past somebody who'd never read there before, they'd be like, oh, we got a virgin poet, and what do we do with virgin poets, man? And everybody in the bar goes, we fuck them up. <laughs> and they do that like three times, and then you get to take the stage and try to keep, you know, give it your A game. What? <laughs> I mean, that sounds incredibly intimidating to walk into that situation. Yeah, it's poets, dude. It's totally intimidating. <laughs> And when you say, like you said, I, I learned how to read, so what does that, is that oh, just... Oh, well, I mean, I've been reading, and, and uh, uh, I, I performed poetry when I was in high school, you know, but, like, in front of people who may or may not like you or your poetry or your shirt, you know, not... Like, like if you're performing, people come to see you, that's different, but, like, if you're performing in a saloon, you know, there might be people there who are not in, more interested in the game. The game might even be on while you're while you're doing your thing. You know what I mean? It was like you have to grab people by the fucking lapels and just sort of. Chicago's style of like performing teaches you that you have to you have to kind of fight and be aggressive a little bit. Not that's assertive, let's say. Assertive uh, is better, yes. Um, but the, but it's not. I mean, you know, there's there. Once you get past the crust and weeds, I mean, they're they're nice to you. They still give you shit. But they're, but you know, like if you if if you can hold your own, if you write a good poem, they'll let you know, they'll will let you know when you do good too, you know. But if you suck, they'll tell you. And 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 uh, and uh, yeah, it's it could it could be rough, and and it's usually in bars. See, poetry doesn't get read in bars in L.A. In L.A., poetry gets read in salons and libraries <laughs> and bookstores mostly, and and stuff like that and everybody's very polite and there's a podium and there's a microphone and like in Chicago you just like walk up and down the length of the bar yelling your fucking poetry at people you know and it's like or you or you might not you know maybe that's not your speed but the but the thing is it's kind of you can you can sort of push it in a way you can in LA and when I first came out here and I saw how polite everybody was and everything like that I just started doing things like when well, they have a sign-up sheet, you know, and you're like third, and when your name go, okay, and here's Dash Machik, and I'm just stand up on on my chair, where I was, instead of taking the podium, and just read from there, you know, and just and just try to like just try to shake everybody out of their like their bookstore complacency. How did they? Because that's reminds me of the first time I saw you, yeah. which is, like, I yeah, I saw you 12 years ago in a coffee shop and everybody else was doing exactly that. It was very polite and yeah. you got up and walked around and... Because that's how we do in Chicago. Yeah, I was, and I think maybe that's what I was attracted to about it was that there was that Chicago feel to it, not knowing that you were from Chicago. But I was like, yeah. but it seemed to, th like, uh, it, people seemed a little surprised by it. Oh, yeah, because, it, I mean, you know, there, the, I... Nobody d had done that that way before. And I would go out to the valley and to readings and be like that. And the, ki 
kids were like, next time I came to the poetry reading, the same one, the same kids are doing the same. Now they're doing it. They're like, fuck the, fuck the stage, fuck the microphone. I'm That's just, great. Yeah, and they just started, just started stalking around, like you know. And I'm like, okay, cool. That's okay. That's awesome. <laughs> it was like, bring, it was like bringing the vice lords to Los Angeles or something. <laughs> I know they're already here, but my point was, it's just like, it's like one of those deals. Of how did that spring up here? Well, somebody. <laughs> but how, like, how when you first started going out to these saloons and doing. Was that like your first experience performing? Because that sounds. No, no, I did. Like I said, I did. I did, um, like, you know, high school theater and and that sort of thing. Uh, so I was sort of a ham. I was always, I've always been a ham, and I'm not afraid. And I had done, been in bands already, and been kind of like the uh, front man of a band. And so I was already really comfortable being in front of people. So yeah, it wasn't because so I could to just switch to poetry was easy. And being a in music in Chicago and stuff is pretty similar. Like you have to, back in the nineties and stuff, you had to be pretty aggressive in those days as well, yeah, or assertive. Guess, yeah, and I, I have I and I don't I don't know what the scene's like because I haven't been there since like early two thousand, and I certainly wasn't playing out um, when I was in the music scene in Chicago. Was in a band called uh, in the eighties, and uh, we were sort of a midwestern Chili Peppers kind of thing. We were on a couple of Thrasher skateboard magazine compilations and we were on like Northwestern University compilation of local fucking punk rockers and we opened it uh, for the Chili Peppers a couple of times at the Metro and for a bunch of other people and opened a few times for Al Jorgensen in one incarnation or another and the name of the band uh, <laughs> just recently found out late uh, like well not just recently probably like five six years ago found out that one of our songs had been used on a Tony Hawk skateboard video as, a, as in a soundtrack in there. And so there was a little resurgence of, of, of uh, interest in uh, certain parties and, and uh, we made a deal to remaster and remix and uh, the only album we put out of our own. We were on compilations, but and uh, I, we all got paid a little bit, but nothing came of it, as far as I know. I haven't seen it yet. I haven't heard anything about it. That, it. that 80s Chicago era was pretty, like, notorious, too. Like, that was a... Who were some of the other bands that were around when you were playing? Um, well, Trenchmouth used to oh, yeah. share a rehearsal space with us. That's uh, crazy, because my ex-wife used to work with... Uh, I forget who. That guy. The African-American <laughs> gentleman, I believe. Oh yeah, right. Um, and then of course Fred Armisen was in right, that band. The, yeah, and and there was a a band called Joe for a Night that was awesome, and there was a band. Um, um, I played with a lot of guys who did uh, electric, like all synthesizer kind of stuff too. And and then when they wanted to play out live in the early '80s, I did this kind of shit. When they wanted to play out live, they would have me come and do like percussion, and I would do like cymbal crashes and like like rolling cymbal kind of things and hitters and bangers and stuff like that. But um, yeah, we were like a weird little funk thing, you know. We it was like it was the early no, it was the mid '80s, and so we had kind of a very hyped up funk thing going. And a very kind of uh, cadence of the time, sort of. <laughs> if you know what I mean, and I think you do. So like, so like, uh, yeah, very, very Midwestern Chili Peppers, I would say. How did you transition from doing that sort of thing into poetry? Was that something you like? Well, I, I, I'd stopped doing that for a while because it. It, uh, the, the guys who were in the band started making videos. They decided to, to start making videos, and they formed a company called H-Gun, and they started making videos, and they weren't interested in being in the van anymore. So I got other jobs, and that, da 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 And then my friend at one of my jobs, Emilio, uh, said, hey, you should come and check this scene out that's going on. I go and read, I read my stuff sometimes. He was showing me the stuff that he wrote, and it was, it was amazing. He's like... He's like, I said, you ever read this out loud? You do this? What do you do with this? He said, I read it over at Weeds. So he took me in over there. And uh, to give you an idea of what kind of place Weeds is, <laughs> I go in there and I go, oh, hey, yeah, I just want to sign up for poetry. You know, Emilio wasn't there. And I said, I talked to the host, Gregorio Gomez, who's just a horrible person. And, and <laughs> I love him. He's a terrible person. And um, 
I go, yeah, I want to sign up. And my friend Emilio told me about this. And he goes, oh, yeah, Emilio, he's awesome. Yeah, that's okay. All right, you're number seven. Okay. All right. And so then, like, they call my name and he goes, okay, this next guy up, he says, I'm a friend of Emilio's. <laughs> I'm a friend of Emilio's. And he said, you know, I told him, I told him, we don't even like that guy. <laughs> And they're just like, okay, all right, great. I've never been here before. And then they do the virgin poet, fuck them up, kind of chant that they do like three times. And then go up there and read for the first time. Have fun. Did it... Uh, Enjoy it. Because <laughs> yeah, it seems like I, I would... Did, was it intimidating or were you like, fuck this, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna. to... Well, I mean, I, I kind of... I expected the virgin poets thing. Because I, you know... But I didn't know that he was going to like make me out to be a whiner and, uh, <laughs> and like a poser and everything before I even got on this fucking stage and uttered a syllable. I had no idea he was going to do that. So that was a surprise. But, you know, you got to roll with it, baby. You know? Yeah. <laughs> you know, not everybody likes you. <laughs> and when poetry, man, bad poetry is so bad. Man, there's nothing fucking worse than bad poetry. And that's why you have to do it in bars. Because if you're in bars, you can at least drink. And listen to bad poetry. <laughs> but if you're at a fucking coffee shop, you're just like, oh, I already had an espresso and I feel these chairs are really uncomfortable. Fuck this thing. You know? Because, <laughs> oh man, there's so you, much. Yeah, do you feel like that, say, the attitude of like politeness here in Los Angeles with poetry and then like sort of the, uh, the, the way it is in Chicago affects the way people write? Because it feels like you would have to. Does yeah, that make sense? I, well, I don't no, yes and no. Yes and no. I see. Um, I see I, I, the places where I went probably weren't conducive for the kind of poetry that I see out here. Let's put it that way. Um, the guys out here would probably... And the I, poetry out here, the, the whole poetry community out here, God bless them, they're all kind of like super inclusive and tolerant, you know? And I don't it's know It's very how, millennial of them. <laughs> <laughs> And they're like, oh, you know, poetry is a big umbrella and there's room for everybody underneath, you know. <laughs> you know, because I started a poetry reading out here in Glendale and it was an invite only because I didn't want bad poets. Are you still doing it? No, no. Fuck, I, I live in Glendale, time. so. Oh, yeah, right. We talked about that. Um, I, I lived there for a long time and I did it at the Brand Bookstore. And it was like once every couple of months or, or once a month. It was once every third Thursday or something like that. And, uh, but it was handpicked. I mean, like, I, I would invite you yes, you don't suck. You can come to my poetry reading and read. And there'd be people there who would appreciate the fact that you... And I was always really good readers and really good writers. You know, I wanted both. Because sometimes you get one or the other. And you get a really good reader and he can work with mediocre shit and make it happen, you know? Uh, but, uh, and then if you get a really good, a really well-written poem, it probably only works on the fucking page. And nobody wants to listen to the poet read it because he's, <laughs> you know... Uh, now, thank you. I'm going to thank. I want before I start my poem, I'd like to thank everybody who. Oh, dude! My, I had these rules at my reading. There would be no explanations, no disclaimers, and no apologies. You know, and if somebody would say, "Okay, thanks," you know, oh, I was just doing this about this poem. I, said, I don't want to fucking hear about it. Read your poem. You know, just make it clear. Read your fucking poem. And that, no. does that not exist in Chicago? That uh, or does it last the sort of apologetic? Oh yeah, well it doesn't exist at fucking weeds or or places where they have that kind of scene. But for the most part, it's like people will yell at you, will yell shit at you from the audience. See, it's a saloon, so it's like you know, you know, like the rickety tick piano in the corner and guys shooting like, you should, shoot. hey, it is. <laughs> hey, you know, people like yelling and shit like that. Yeah, you know, they're yelling at you, man. They don't, you know, they don't have to, you know, actually even like you. You have to deal with it. It's, it's, it's even, it's even worse than like stand up, because stand up, like people want to like hear the jokes. In poetry, they don't even fucking want to hear the jokes. They're just like, just okay, you, you suck. You already suck. You've sucked for like the last four stanzas. Get off the fucking stage, you know. But they don't do that out here. Everybody's like, oh, yeah. and then you get a little, you know, uh, golf clap. At the end of your piece. Do you think that's, uh, what do you think of that? That it, I mean, it's nice that they're inclusive, but it's, because it, I'm conflicted, because like part of me is like, oh, if somebody's you like. Just, if you had a magazine, you'd be an editor. You'd decide what you want in it, and you'd decide what wouldn't, didn't make the cut that month. Write another article, maybe, you know, work on your chops and come back to us, you know? And nobody, nobody get bats a second eye, uh, you know, bats a second eye? No, gives that a second. 
eyelids? <laughs> I don't. I don't oh, know. Yeah. That's yeah. We, we, you, know we, you just coined a new. So so so. Um, but if you're a poetry host, you're supposed to like put up with everybody and and get everybody a second round of applause and and say thank you so much for coming and all that kind of shit. And it, I'm like, and like my readings weren't like that. They were just like, okay, you're next, and you're not, you're on deck. And you know, you, if you got something to say, we need to hear it. You can be after everybody who got invited goes. If you still want to, after you hear the caliber, of what's going on here? If you still feel like you got something we need to hear, by all means, stand up. Yeah. You know. But my my and snappy too, because poetry readings in, in LA just go on for hours. God, everything goes on for hours, hours here. And Comedy hours. shows go on. They start late and they go on for hours. Yeah, I feel like. Getting checked if you're a young writer performer is important. Like I, there was people in Chicago who were like, and it fucking hurt, and at times it was devastating. But then I also needed to hear it because I was being full of shit, <laughs> 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 and I, you know, yeah. or I was copying. You know, I was young and I was copying other people's style, and yeah. people. Right. Pe- so it was like to get the, and that's a, but that's a very, to me, a very Chicago I thing. Not, I, I have not. I I don't try to publish poetry. I just perform it. So I have not tried to break into the literary scene. So I don't know if the literary scene is way more exclu- exclusive for better or worse, for good reasons, for bad reasons, than the poetry reading scene. But the poetry reading scene in Los Angeles and the Valley is super inclusive, super tolerant to their own detriment. <laughs> now, why didn't what 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 is why don't you want to? Uh why didn't you want to get into being published? That's an interesting thing to me. Well, that's just not why I do it. You know? It's just I think pro- it, uh, poetry was originally supposed to be out loud. I think it's supposed to be out loud. So I have made CDs, but nobody fucking cares. Nobody really cares. I, I mean, you go to poetry readings and everybody... It's like going to, it's like going to a comedy open mic. Bunch of comedians in the audience watching a comedian on stage, waiting their turn to do their thing. You know, nobody's going to laugh. Right. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. Nobody's going to tell you you got a, a good poem. They're going to give the golf clap at the end, you know? It's, um... <laughs> that's, it, that's interesting that it... I don't know. I've, I've lost my point. Fuck, I hate myself right now. <laughs> <laughs> well, I just think it's interesting that it's... Oh, I know what I was going to say. That... Because... Bec- I feel like people have gotten a tainted view of poetry over because it, like you were saying, like with the beats and stuff. People, it was weird to me, like in the fifties and sixties, people like actively bought and read poetry, right? And it was like an important thing, right? Nobody, yeah, nobody really is. If poets, I'm fond of saying, if poets were important in America, we'll know they're important when they start taking them out and shooting them or disappearing <laughs> them. Then you'll know they're important because in other countries they do actually take fucking poets out and shoot them because. There's certain things you can't say, and but nobody listens. But you, poets rail against the system all the time. I just went to a reading that was all about poets of change, men of change, a hundred thousand poets for change. Rail against, yeah, I'll talk fucking full on revolution, man. Nobody's listening to you. Nobody cares. It's poetry. It's. Uh, I always wanted to open for rock bands. I thought that would be the ultimate poetry gig because you'd you'd be in front of a bunch of people who didn't fucking want to hear you. You didn't come here to listen to fucking poetry. They came here to rock out, right? And you need to grab them and get them on your side. That would be the ultimate fucking poetry gig for me. And then there's not a bunch of fucking poets in the audience. In fact, some of these people probably hate poetry. Make them love it. That would be the ultimate fucking poetry gig, you know? I think because because if you read if you read in front of other poets, then, you know, other poets won't necessarily come over and be supportive because in the same way that other comedians won't necessarily come up to you after your set and go, wow, that was really great. You know, because it'll be like, my turn. <laughs> Check me out. That's, you know? that's uh, too bad. Yeah, it's it's. It's bothersome to me that poetry, like you almost, you mentioned the word, and or it's like people go, uh Yeah, and well, they mainstream should, man, one. because ninety percent of it is fucking shit. You know, there's, I mean, there's so many people who write, so many people write poetry, man, write poetry. There's so many people make art. You know, there's capital P poetry, there's capital A art. You know, I mean, like there's so many people who do it, and they're not, they, they're not. They're missing important elements here and there, whatever, whether it's history or whether it's style or whether whatever, you know, they're, yes, I'm glad you expressed your feelings. <laughs> I got a chance to speak in front of a bunch of a creative writing uh, a, a workshop, a summer workshop with a bunch of kids who are going to college at Occidental College, and they were all going to go to college, they were high school kids, and there was a poetry thing, and the guy just, it's a great 
poetry host in, in uh, L.A. would just bring poets in to talk the whole time. And, and the first thing I said to him is like, it's not, thank you for expressing yourself. Thank you. And that's great. But that's not art. And I don't know what they've been telling you. But it's not necessarily poetry just because you told me how you felt. What else did you do? You know, did you, where did you take me? What do, were you even playful with the language? Did you just, you know, I mean, like, if you just stand up and tell me your feelings, that's not going to cut it. And it was like, you could, it was like, oh, I just fucked up everybody's curriculum. You know, I could just like, all because it was, because it's, I mean, you know, let's face it, we don't have any money for uh, the arts. And we don't have any funding <laughs> for, you know, it's just like, but everybody can afford a pen and a piece of paper. So put down your feelings and let's call it art, you know, and that's, and, and so poetry gets, because a lot of people mistake it. And Bukowski used to do what were basically fucking journal entries towards the end. But they were Bukowski's journal entries, and that made them important. But it influenced a whole bunch of people to go, oh, my I have a journal. <laughs> you know, maybe people will care. You know, no, I don't care. That, that brings up an Do you, because I. I there's elements of Bukowski I really like, especially, I th think we talked about this, like I loved Notes of a Dirty Old Man was like the right. first book of his I read in well, high that's school. Prose. That's his prose, which I also like. But his, uh, I like his, um, I'm sorry to interrupt you, but I, no, I, no. I like his, uh, his poetry, is his best poetry was like um, when he was completely crazy. And, and, and in the 50s, and in the, in the early 60s, in the late 40s, uh, there's a book uh, called The Rooming House Madrigals. That's got like from the f late, late 40s to the early 60s. And it's fucking great shit. And it's what he referred to sort of with his tongue in his cheek as his lyrical period. It's way nuttier than the, than the you know, the walk through fire sh stuff towards the end, which is just like, you know, oh, by that point, he's living in San Pedro. He's comfortable. You know, you know, he's probably going to he's going to die an old man. He's still got a BMW. He's got a fucking hot tub. <laughs> You know, and, yeah, and and it was interesting because it was Bukowski, and he had Bukowski's, but it but so many people started going, oh, I can I can do that, I can express my feelings. No thanks. We're gonna take a break from the conversation for one quick moment. I just want to ask for your help if you can go to the Feral Audio page and go to the Conversations with Matt Dwyer page, and. Uh, click on the Amazon link and maybe put that in your toolbar or something. So anytime you buy something on Amazon, we get a kickback of that money a little bit and it helps support Feral Audio and my podcast. There's no advertising on my show, so it's a great way to support. Also, if you can donate some money, that would be incredibly helpful. Uh, we always are in need of equipment or uh, new microphones and stuff, so that would be grateful. Also, go to themattdwyer.com. You can see some photos of this uh, episode up there. It might be, take, be a couple days after this airs, but um, there's uh, photos from all my podcasts uh, and road trips and stuff, so check out themattdwire.com. Back to the conversation. Yeah, it's uh, that seems to be a symptom of this era we live in where it's like, uh, I don't know, like angers, any kind of anger or... Uh, skepticism is almost viewed as like, oh, no, 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 like, be positive. And it's like, that uh, is bad for, <laughs> bad for art, bad for society. Like yeah, we well, yeah, if, you, if, you're, if you're suppressing, sure. <laughs> you know? But it's like, yeah, you should be, we should, like, I always say this, but like Martin Luther King was angry. He just handled it well. Right, right. And if you settle for mediocrity, that's what you get. You know what I mean? So, like, I want, I want, I want people to, to, to shake the boat. I want you know to rock the boat. I want I want people to be like more agitated, because uh, because uh, this uh, whispering, whispering done into a microphone. It's not making it for me. Lisping done into a microphone. Do you feel like too? Because you, that poetry slam thing. I kind of forgot until you said it that yeah that was a big thing in Chicago and it did right. it did and it, start and it went nationwide and it went worldwide and it's turned into this weird thing now where people get up and they do some people do like um, monologues what I would call monologues the best of it approaches approaches poetry the best of it approaches poetry but so much of it 
And there's and when you go to see the local slams, man, in Chicago and L.A., people still do this weird cadence, and I don't really get it. Where did that come from? I don't from? know, man. I think it's fucking William Shatter. That's I what might... I was say. <laughs> and it didn't dawn on me until you were doing it. I was like, yeah, it is William Shatner. Yeah, but it sounds like this. And I don't know what the fuck they think they're doing, but, uh, but, but that was not the way the slams went down in Chicago. People got up and read poems, you know, and they were beautiful and lyrical and, and lovely and floating, or they were like two-fisted and kicking the balls or, you know, whatever the fuck they were. But there was that weird cadence thing. I don't know when that developed. I think that happened through the 90s. Uh, I'm not really yeah, sure. Yeah, that's when I became aware of it because it, it, I know, like, some dude... It's that, just so prevalent, and I don't know, uh, I don't know why. <laughs> it makes me sad. <laughs> Who were who were like writers that uh, spoke to you as like poet? Who were the guys who were like uh, or women? I, I, I say guys because I'm from Chicago, and then it just sounds sexist. But I mean it both. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But like, who were the ones that grabbed you? Piece. Thank you. <laughs> um, um, the very first uh, poets that I like, the very first poets I like was uh, Richard Brodigan. Is the first guy that I remember really liking because he was super accessible. And and uh, very hip, and then uh, then and then right after I brought again, I started reading Bukowski, um, but I like. Uh, were you young when you were reading this stuff, yeah, or was this that like was high school? Yeah, yeah. So like, I had an English teacher who snuck some kids into the Quiet Night to see Bukowski in like '77. Whoa, '76. That's badass. Yeah, totally right. I don't even know what the Quiet Night is, by the way. Oh, it was the bar that became Tuts, that became Avalon, that became Wow. All those bars. That's a badass teacher. Yeah. The, the bar the, over on Belmont, that joint on Belmont. Yeah. yeah. Because it was a, at the time when it was named The Quiet Night, it was a uh, folk music kind of joint. Yeah. If I remember correctly. Now, yeah. I think I'm right. If the one on Belmont, the one that was uh, later became Tuts. That's the one I'm thinking of. But anyway, she got them in to see Bukowski, and so I knew about Bukowski in like '75 or '76. So and you got to see him live. That's in kind of incredible. Oh, well, I didn't get to oh. see him. Oh, I didn't get to see him. I I only heard about it because they all went. I was like, "Fuck you guys!" And they were like, uh, "Your English teacher is sneaking you into nightclubs in downtown Chicago. I want in." You know, what's that all about? Well, we went to go see this guy, and they gave me his book. And so that's, and that was Erections, Ejaculations, Exhibitions, and General Tales of Ordinary Madness. And it was the same time brought again, and the same time for Tom Waits, because the first Tom Waits album I ever heard was Nighthawks at the Diner, and that was like 77, 76 or 77. That's funny, because both of so Tom Waits was also a big kind of, performance influence you know because um obviously he was every, setting everything to music but just the his whole shtick his whole urban shtick i love yeah first reading bukowski in high school and then hearing tom waits those were like two seminal moments in my life where right. i was just and like you wanted bukowski to sound like tom waits and he so doesn't have you ever heard bukowski He's got this almost whiny nasal fucking yeah. twang. Thing the first on. time I heard his voice, I was like, I was like, oh fuck, man, really? <laughs> I was so disappointed, dude. I totally wanted him to sound like fucking Scatman Crothers. I really, yeah, I. That's how I envisioned it my whole life, and it was like once I heard him, I was like, wow, really? Oh, jeez, because that's how he sounds. You know, he's got a. Uh, I loved William. I love hearing William Burroughs' voice. It's perfect. Burroughs is, but yeah. But Kerouac had already described it perfectly, so I was ready for it. I and mean, it was like uh, W.C. Fields on heroin, basically. Well, I've that's how it goes. <laughs> <laughs> that is a perfect... I never heard that, uh, I never heard that Kerouac thing, so Yeah, that's... I called him. He, he said he had a Fields thing going. And, uh, and, of course, he was always on smack so at that time. But I liked his voice, um, um, but Bukowski, wow, what a, what a letdown. What a letdown. Yeah, that is. Uh, so you, th th that's I. It, oh, I was gonna say the CDs thing that you were saying, like good po performed poetry. Because I interviewed this woman, Ruth Weiss, who was a, a kind of in the with the beats and stuff, and uh, I listened to some of her performance CDs, and it's like she from out west. 
She's from Germany originally, oh, yeah. but she like moved. She actually lived in Chicago for a long time, and then was in her twenties was living in San Francisco, and like she'd meet up with Kerouac. But like her performance, so she was a San Francisco North Shore beat. Yeah, thing. yeah, and then, but her performance stuff is like. It's like you're go- like it. You you get lost in it. Like it's an incredible. Yeah, I mean, you gotta. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, you don't. You don't just stand up there and you know recite your po- read your poem. Just read people. Just read their fucking poems, dude. Really, seriously? Are you gonna bother to get in front of people and you're just gonna fucking read it? <laughs> Performant. You know, and then there's a thing. Oh, well, I'm not a performance poet. You know, whatever that means. Like, I write different kind of poetry because I'm a performance poet. I don't know. I don't fucking know. I, I write it. I call it poetry. I read it out loud because that's what I understand the history is. Uh, lyrics are like to be accompanied by a lyre. You know, it's music. And it's supposed to be music even if there's no music there. You know, it's supposed to be performed. Do you see uh, poetry taking a, any co- sort of turn in the future where that maybe people's attitude would... Because it's interesting that so many people write poetry and dabble in it, but yet there's still this sort of, I don't know, weird attitude to well, it. I think uh, the other thing is that like when, if you're going to study poetry, I mean, when, you, when, you're, when you're introduced to poetry in, Amer- in the American school system, such as it is... Uh, it's like, you know, roses are red and violets are blue or whatever, you know. And then it, and then it does sort of be like, oh, yeah, feelings and emotions and, and all that kind of thing. So people have, Americans have tended to think of it, poetry as having that sort of adolescent angsty sort of like, oh, either, either it's fucking black, you know, black rinse and Edgar Allan Poe or it's fucking unicorns and... <laughs> And glitter or something, you know, there's that's that there's no I don't know. People associate, I think Americans associate of our age, associate poetry with learning about it. And in high school and all the, you know, all the weird emotions and all of that. And they would really rather not. It's easier to watch football. I think it's harder to have a really good fantasy football team, but it's easier to just watch football. God, what if the halftime they started just putting in, <laughs> in poets? <laughs> Yes. The halftime should they should try more to strive for uh, uplifting our culture. I read in in in, in um in yeah I read in uh, the Abbot Kenny Fest last weekend in in Venice where the beat poets are from man and and the Beyond Baroque which has a total full on connection to the West Coast beat scene and uh, and uh, easily traced back and so we had our little stage and we're reading at Abbot Kinney Fest and these are thousands and thousands of people who are mostly from Santa Monica and Beverly Hills you know going to get the Venice Beach experience without actually having to go to where the homeless <laughs> people live on the boardwalk and and so uh, we're reading and I'm, I'm, I'm but Venice is nuts, you know, and I noticed that I actually pulled in freaks like just like freaks with guys with no hair and prison tattoos on bicycles would go, oh, wait, got to check out the poetry and like come in while, while I was reading. And I'm like, yes, success. <laughs> <laughs> I've, re- I've reached the people. <laughs> that's a, you know, that's an interesting thing. I wonder if like is poetry more alive in Europe than we seem to shit on all good things <laughs> <laughs> well you know they're just it's not sellable you know i mean if they made it sellable if they made it fast and sexy and fun and easy if they made, i don't know you know if they made it what would you have to do to fucking poetry man seriously think about it though the rock show the poet that goes out before a rock show that's the fucking gig man that's the gig you know because who are you going to reach you know i mean they already probably depending on what the group is they're there to see at least maybe let's give them the benefit of the doubt and say they like the lyrics that they're about to hear they actually listen to and like the lyrics so they have a a means to appreciate it okay even if i'm not even if i don't have my their favorite band behind me i'm still got something going on that might be worth listening to or engaging with you know so i think that's the way to go yeah and if you've I don't know. I've seen a lot of rock bands, cop poets. Certainly, lyrics. the only way I could make any money performing <laughs> poetry. What Wilco had uh, had somebody open. I forget. They had the Chicago guy open. Yeah. Do you know who I'm? Uh, uh, Chicago guy. You know who I'm talking about? Yeah, it's a big city. <laughs> I've, we but, lived there at different times. So. <laughs> I forget. He was some old dude who did poetry. And oh yeah. 
I don't know. They had him open well, up. Fucking Laurie Anderson and William Burroughs read for him. That kind of shit went on. See, that ne- shit needs to happen more. And there, you know what? There were poets at CBGB's back in the day, too. Occasionally. There's somebody would get up yeah. there. Talk about a rough crowd, I would think. CBGB's? <laughs> CBGB's. We I played there. My band played there, but like it was like in the late 80s and nobody cared. But And we went on at like 7.30 or some kind of bullshit. But, but uh, back in the day when... When it was a little, you know, when it was a little crucible down there, that was a that was a, a scene. They would have some poets. Yeah, I had a couple friends who were in the in that world in that heyday, and it was like Patty Smith was a poet. Patty Smith, yeah, a friend of mine actually played with Patty Smith a bit. That's cool. But uh, that place sounded so like so you know people. He's just a, he's just a musician. He was he's not like uh, you know, but but that place seemed terrible. Like it. Just the photos and stuff. It looked like a. Uh, I saw it in the '90s when it was like kind of cleaned up, but it, like back in that day, that was Which like. Which CBGBs. Oh yeah, right. Like a oh, shit. The worst worst yes, bathrooms. That's what I remember on on the on the western hemisphere. Worst bathrooms. People I, even worse than exit where I worked. That's which I thought was fucking pretty terrible. I mean, we had like one commode with no seat and no stall around it, and one urinal that didn't work. Any urinal that did work, and no hot, no hot running water. That's right. You worked at Exit, which was the the original punk rock thing. No, in no, Chicago. The, original, the original punk rock thing in Chicago was La Mer Viper, which that, was like in the uh, in the seventies. Um, I don't that know was anything the, that, about that. Yeah, that was that was the original punk rock thing. That was like we're talking like New York Dolls, kind of like that whole scene. That that yeah, pre-punk rock kind of thing. Was it still Ramones, like kind of small Dolls. and sh- sh- shitty? Totally, because that's where the cheap rent was. And you worked at Exit, because Exit is fucking Exit old. On Wells inf- Street is infamous. That place, because I told you I'd been in there in high school, and yeah, I, I mean, worked. it was uh, that was the first time I'd like walked into that sort of culture yeah. at, in like eighty. This is like eighty six. <laughs> yeah, and it was like, it was pretty yes. mind blowing. I I uh, was born in Chicago, but um, I didn't live there my whole life, and. Uh, when I was 18, when I turned 18, um, the day I turned 18, I went to Chicago. I went back to Chicago. I was in Arlington Heights then. I know Arlington Heights well. And uh, I had already my senior year in high, high school, 77, 78. Um, the Ramones and the Sex Pistols and the Clash were on the fucking jukebox, so I was already I knew about that. And then I left home and I could do whatever I want, listen to whatever I want, went nuts, you know, and fucking safety pins and blue hair and. You know, completely nuts. And then by like 84 or so, I landed the gig at Exit. Wow. And so I was tw- like 24, 23, 24. And I was a, uh, I started out as a doorman because I was doing doorman in other places. Always the littlest doorman. <laughs> and now the story of the littlest doorman. It's like working in a hole because everybody's like this is big and everything. But you got to, you know, if you're the little guy, you got to know stuff. But anyhow, working uh, at, at Exit, I worked at the door, started out at the door, and then ended up as assistant manager, which means I was there five nights a week. So I was fucking running the joint. So you dealt with uh, Gigi Allen a little bit, I'm oh assuming? Oh, my God, no. I got that fucking night off. I told you I would fucking kill that motherfucker. I said, no way. I said, he's got a death wish. I want to help. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not working that night. You're working that night. He's like, okay, okay, I got it. I'm like, okay. Yeah, yes, I, I did not deal with that shit. I cleaned up after him because we did for weeks. <laughs> and we had to deal with the fact that the sound man, you know, I mean, he stuck the sound man's microphone up his ass. So the sound man was a little bit pissed. I had friends who tried to drag me to that. And I'm like, I am not. No, man. Having shit thrown at me. Like, no, I'm like, why just, would huh? you go to that? <laughs> it's like. Well, you know, because, I mean, it's, the a, infamy. it's, it's, it's like some gourmet shit, man. Not too many people can <laughs> say they went to a, that punk rock, saw that punk rock dude in, in his prime before he killed himself. And when he used to do the outrageous shit he used to do, that's primo stuff. Man. Yeah, I'm okay it's not having seen that. <laughs> I am too, dude. I like totally, I was like, no, I'm not working that night. As I, that's exactly what I told my boss. He's got a death wish. I want to fuck him. Were there any, like, like I always wonder, like, was he just a nice guy if you met him on the street, or was he just always constantly fucking crazy? Mine all the time. I, and it's a total jump out of of topic, but you mentioned 
when I got here that John Wayne Gacy offered you a ride once. Well, I, yeah, I was working in uh, was working in a factory uh, in. It was sort of in an unincorporated area in between Arlington Heights and Des Plaines, and I was walking to work, and it was raining, it was pounding down rain, and I was walking to work, and I was probably about 17 or 16, and this car pulls up next to me, it's an old station wagon, it's got a bunch of like five gallon buckets in the back and sawhorse parts and fat dude at the wheel, and he goes, you need a ride? And I go, no, I'm good, man, I'm like, I'm, I only got like I got less than a block to go. Like a DA and a little mustache, the whole thing. And I'm like, uh, I'm, he's like, Do you, are you sure you need a ride? I said, no, no, I'm good, I'm good, I'm good, I'm just, I'm fine. He's like, because it's not a truck. I said, look, why don't you fucking back off? <laughs> and he stomped on the accelerator and took off. And I didn't think anything of it. I actually told my friend about it. And he said, oh, yeah, kind of a fat guy, mustache, he offered me a ride home, too. One time, I, I know the guy, it's the station wagon, right? He knew it, boom, big, big, bang, he knew it, right? Fucking two, three years later. And they find out about him on the news. And we see it on the news. And we're like, da, 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 da. <laughs> But, you know, I mean, he was looking for youngsters who were super vulnerable and, and innocent and not, yeah. wouldn't, not the kind of kids who'd say, hey, why don't you back the fuck off? Because he was, you know, hey, let me want to see my trick handcuffs. <laughs> I mean, you know, I'm not saying they're stupid. I'm just saying they're naive and young. Yeah. And that's how he got them. Anybody who told him, showed him the slightest bit of resistance, I'm out of here. You know, I don't even want to, I wish I hadn't even asked out, you know, because that's how you leave a trail. So, because we were talking about it. Me and my friends were talking about it. It happened to him, too. That's fucking crazy. I think yeah. another friend got, I think another friend of mine claimed, I have to email him, that he actually got, had a ride with him and got out early or something. Debbie Harry said she got in a car with Ted Bundy. I don't know. Whoa. She was very skinny at the time, and the window was... She got in the car and noticed there was no handle on the door. Just hitchhiking. And he pulled over, and she got in. No handle on the door. And she's like, what the fuck? And she got out th through the window, which was, like, not cranked all the way up. She's That's on heroin, so she was really skinny at the time. <laughs> I don't know. It, does that play... I mean... It's supposed to be a true story. I, don't know. I believe that's a uh, true story. It's true enough. Uh, yeah, Gacy was a terrifying thing for a Chicago kid in those days. Like, it was, even though he was in prison, you were yeah. like, uh, you would be afraid. Gacy will get you if that's you what, don't watch out. That's, that's what Car everybody Carmen said. Sasse, yeah. yeah. Carmen Sosa. Uh, oh, what's his name uh, in uh, Usual Suspects? Oh, uh, Kaiser Sose? Kaiser Sose. Kaiser Sose, yeah. Is that yeah. <laughs> I would run home from my friend's ho house, like, the five blocks, but I would sprint the entire way because I was like, Gacy's going to get you. Gacy. Yeah, which you don't know them until, like, they get caught, you know. And, like, fucking Dahmer. Like, the, like kids got away from Dahmer, and the cops, like, brought him back. You know, That's so astounding. all kinds of crazy shit went on with that. So you never know. I mean, every, you know, every, every well-manicured lawn hides a tragedy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's those. It's the, it's the, the Mr. That world that scares. The suburbs scare me more than any, like, People get afraid of the city and stuff, and I'm like, yeah, the suburbs right. freak me the fuck out. Yeah, city's like all out in your face, man. You yeah, know, you know when to cross the street. In the suburbs, you don't know what the fuck is going on. There's some, there's, I'm just all kinds of crazy shit. People's heads get twisted so hard in the suburbs, not like they do under generations of poverty and ignorance and and you know institutionalized racism. I'm not talking about that kind of twist. <laughs> I'm talking about like the weird emotional psychological. People grow up with some weird shit, man. Like, you know, weird shit happens. I grew up in Streamwood, and it was like... Streamwood? Do you know Streamwood? Well, I kind of I, I had an uncle who lived there for a little while. Yeah, I, when I was a kid, it was a shithole. I don't know if it got any better, but it was like... Yeah, I, I remember my brother hating black people and had never met any. And I'm like, what are you... How, like, are you mad at Mr. Jefferson? How did that happen? Or Jimmy Walker? How did that happen? <laughs> yeah. What's he, what, did, what did Jimmy Dynamite Walker ever do to you, pal? Yeah, I couldn't. I never was able to. Uh, like, we had Mexicans, and he didn't hate Mexicans, but he hated black people. Well, I Not that he why. should hate Mexicans. <laughs> I made it sound like he should have hated Mexicans. Oh, man. Oh, edit. Edit that shit. Edit. Seriously, dude. <coughs> Are you going to do a angry. couple of poems here for us, if you don't mind? Yeah. Um, I don't write a lot of poems anymore because I mostly write lyrics. 
Because I'm in a band for, now. For the Cap Gun Holdups? Right. The Cap Gun Holdups. Which, uh, the stuff I heard is great. Yeah, it's... Uh, if, to, but... but uh, um, are there CDs days, or any right? of... I'm sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt Go you. Ahead. Oh, is there CDs and shit people can get of Cap Gun Holdups? Oh, or yeah, any? Cap Gun Holdups got... Uh, a, uh, self-titled uh, CD on iTunes, so you could go there and get that. Okay, yeah. and that's a happening thing. We're, we got, we got, we're playing out a lot lately. Shit's popping right now. That's so good. That's good. Um, <clears throat> how many minutes do we have here? What are we, uh, you know, whatever. You, you, five, ten. Okay, is good. Whatever you need. Um, this poem's called Walenda. Making the bed, thinking about how if I ever get to the point where I can't complete the little tasks, climbing the stairs, say, or wiping my ass, I'll cash in my chips and then suddenly remembering Carl Walenda all alone on that wire in the wind. First death I ever saw on video. And I always wonder, did he, get up, did he give up or did he just get tired? It's great. <laughs> <laughs> um, <clears throat> slightly more serious note. These are like very recent. These are like within the last couple of weeks. Contemplation of loss. Nobody gets out alive. Shit. Please try to understand. These are knots tying and untying themselves. The fortunate and the anointed recognize the random perfection. Beauty is how your eyes are shaped. Horror is where you find it, but grace is everywhere, even in the shit and decay. Ever present, before, during, after, and forever. When realized, it puts us in touch directly with the first cause of all causes, the original spill. Shit. Nobody here gets out alive. And the lucky ones write verse. <laughs> Punchline poetry. <laughs> I have punchlines. Punch that's, that's great. That's a very important aspect of saloon poetry. Is it lines. really? Well, I'm, you know, I mean, make them laugh, right? Then you can really fuck with them. Once you got them on your side, once they're laughing, you can really fuck with them then, you know? Yeah. And then you can really bend their heads. <clears throat> um, there's another short one, Rainbows. <laughs> <laughs> I wish they could have seen Magic. what you just did. <laughs> Rainbows are okay, I guess. Well, no. They're not. I mean, I've always had an appreciation for color, and I like the prism effect of sunlight catching on something as much as the next guy. Maybe more. Maybe too much. But light caught by a human eye is all the more stunning, surrounded as it is by darkness. No need for the false promises of good fortune and pots of gold. All right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, how about one more and then... Okay, one more. This doesn't have a title. It's hard to read to because it's in green ink. <laughs> we who thrive on chaos must take the time to make our own mercy. Addicted at birth to disaster, scared to life and left to the wolves with the best intentions... Head wrapped in a swaddling of lies, conditioned to turmoil, shot through with doubt. We must try to find that place where even we are still. We make our own mercy, for no one else's will do. The only forgiveness for the likes of us is that with which we gift ourselves. That's great. Thank you. Uh, and where can... Uh Cap Gun, they can find Cap Gun holdups on iTunes and I'll and on Spotify as well. And oh, cool! Is, is it on audio by chance? Because I have audio. It might be. I will look that up. Spotify. And I'll post a video of it on my website. Thank you very much. Thank you very much for listening to Conversations with Matt Dwyer. I appreciate it. Follow me on Twitter, the Matt Matt underscore Dwyer. Uh, go to the mattdwyer.com. Uh, go to the Conversations with Matt Dwyer page at Feral Audio. Go to the Amazon link there. Support our show, please. We need to actually, I need a new recorder. So if anyone wants to help out with a new recorder, you could also donate and I can, all that stuff. Thank you very much for listening. I love you. Feral Audio.
to the United States government, it is the mission of the National Security Agency to assess and flag citizens of the country who may present a threat to its security. The NSA has clearance to wiretap by any means necessary. Tapped. Incidental recordings of private conversations from the files of the NSA. Now on feralaudio.com.